Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. On Wednesday, Racing TV sent a camera to Cork the day after a Pat died. And Pat Healy very kindly manned that camera for us and conducted interviews. There was a queue, almost half a mile long, of people wanting to come on and pay tribute. 50 interviews at court. There were barely 60 people there. Everybody wanted to come on and say something, uh, their reminiscences, about Pat Smullen. And, and that really, Dave, in its own simple, small way, tells you all you need to know. Yes, it does. Uh, I think that the... Uh, in, in in situations like this, uh, it's often said, or it's sometimes said, you know, that nobody had a, a bad word to say about uh, a certain person. And in and in Pat Smullen's case, it's uh, it's very true. You know, the uh, what's what's happened over the last few days is a testament to that, isn't it? You know, there have been some. Wonderful words written. Uh, I, you know, I, I should. One shouldn't single out people, but I thought that Richard Forrestal's piece was uh, was superb, as was Dave Jennings in the Racing Post. Um, that people have been uh, just universally uh, very uh, kind and and positive about. A, 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 I was going to say a jockey, but a man who was. Uh, it, during his profession was a credit it, the time in his profession was a credit to that profession he brought uh, determination he brought dignity um, but in circumstances like this we we often focus too much on what people did during their careers it's what they did out of their careers mm. that are the uh, the important things and Pat Smullen also brought that dignity that determination that force uh, of being for good after his uh, the, the diagnosis of pan pancreatic cancer. Um, I can't, uh, and I wouldn't claim to uh, know Pat Smana well. I, I interviewed him a few times in a professional capacity. The 2016 Derby win on Harzan was a very warming moment because uh, one, everybody again felt positive for the individuals involved. Mm. Um, and th throughout his, uh, throughout since the diagnosis, which was in March 2018. Uh, again, he he was that positive force. I think Dave Jennings said his his ego would fit inside an egg cup. It, it wasn't about him. Uh, and it, it, when when you lose people so young, uh, of course it's a it's a a terrible. Uh, you you have a, a a great feeling of injustice that someone has been taken uh, from you at, at such an early age, forty three. Um, I think that. It, it, if it's any solace to uh, Pat 
Smiling's loved ones, the, the, the fact that he was so universally liked, that everybody had nothing but good words to say about him, and that in those 43 years, he achieved so much, not, not in the saddle, not as well as in the saddle, out of the saddle. And it, it's, it's very, very hard to be thankful for the 43 years. At times like this, you, you concentrate on the, the years beyond the 43 that you didn't have. Um, but I hope, as I say, that, that, uh, that what's been said this week by those who knew him best, particularly, that, that, uh, that people have, have felt that loss so sharply and that they've had such, such good words to say about such a, a fundamentally such a good man. Pat Smullen, who, who died this week, and our thoughts, as the thoughts of the entire racing industry are, with his wife Frances and their three children. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Alongside me is David Yates to now look back on some of the highlights from yesterday's racing. We'll start at Newbury with the Mill Reef Stakes. Well, these horses don't grow on trees, do they? These Hamden Almac tomb-owned sons of showcasing who are very smart. Well, yes, they do, if your name happens to be Marcus Dragoning, because no sooner does Mahatha exit stage right than entering stage left is, is Alcumate, Dave, and it was great to see. Yeah, there would certainly be a, a strong element of poetic justice were Alcumate uh, to turn out to be a star. Uh, an interesting point with this, Nick, is... Marcus Tregonin came into the press room, the makeshift press room, at the Qatar Goodwood Festival, mm -hmm. just before Al Kumate uh, ran in his uh, six, the six furlong maiden that he won. And obviously everybody knows that Marcus is, a, is a, an affable man who treats those twin imposters the same, uh, always of a good nature. But he seemed rather tense. Uh, at the start of this. When Jim Crowley pushed Alchemate uh, clear at Goodwood, he got quite vocal and was clearly very relieved that the horse had delivered what he thought he was capable of. And he's built on that here. Um, he's a bit of a stargazer at the moment. That might be that he's just, hopefully that he's just uh, rough hewn. He beats 5,000 to one here and no one would be happier uh, than I would be if this horse were to be another Group 1 winner for the team. Somebody might be, and that might, man might be Marcus Tregonic, who's joining us on the line now. Marcus, good morning. Uh, good morning, Nick, and good morning, Dave. Uh, I'm very pleased we've had the opportunity on, on several occasions this season to talk on a Sunday morning, which normally means things are going quite well. Uh, just, just tell me what it meant to you to have a, another horse of this calibre so soon after, after Mahatha was forced into retirement. Well, going into the race, I have to tell you, we were, we were pretty keen that um, you know, we, we're pretty sure he's going to run a big race because he's been working extremely well, and um, you know, obviously showcasing has been an absolute star for us and a star for Whitsby Stud. You know, he's been, you know, he, you know, he's put us back on track, um, and hopefully we can stay there now. But uh, you know, obviously Mahatha was um, a brilliant, brilliant horse, and um, it was so sad that uh, you know he had to retire early, although he'd only. Had I'm sure he'd have just had that one race on Champions Day, and that would have been it. But um, you know, he was an extraordinary horse, and um, this is this horse is the young pretender, the young pretender. But he's he's um, you know he's an exciting prospect, and obviously it's lovely to have a, another Group winner for Sheikh Hamdan, who's been a wonderful supporter of late. 
uh, well, I'll come back to that in just a moment. What I want to ask you about this horse is so the question related to Mahatha in a way, because there was nothing necessarily about Mahatha's profile that suggested that he was going to be a champion miler. There's not really much at all in this horse's profile that he should be running a lot further than than six furlongs. But could he, in fact, be cut from the same cloth? Um, well, you know, he's, have you noticed his action? Is that this horse has got more of a, um, should we say, a daisy clipping action? So. So I think, you know, he might be more top of the ground um, from that. You know, Mahath had this amazing action, tremendously, you know, he'd extend in a sort of, you know, in a champion's way that he was, you know, whereas this horse has a slightly different action. But um, I think, you know, he does settle well um, at this alchemate. He does settle well. And obviously we will try and see if we can at least get him to stay with seven. And then after that, we'll just have to see. But... You know, if he doesn't run again this year, um, you know, he'd have to be supplemented for the Dewhurst, so that may not happen. But if he doesn't run, he's put away for the year. But I, I would think that we'd be thinking about the green him for next year. So, so you're going to give it a go? You're not simply going to say, no, he's a sprinter, we'll go down the sprinting route? No, I think it'd be boring not to try, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because um, I, I think we can do it personally. I think, you know, we've got a very good staff here, very good riders and um, a very good team of people. I work very closely with Gary and Craig Witherford, who are absolutely brilliant in, this, in, this, in our business. I mean, they've, they're, they're, you know, they've done so much for them. these sort of horses. I mean, they, when they're quite highly strung early de- in the early days, they can help an awful lot. And, you know, I value their input. And they're only about 40 minutes away from me. So we do a lot of work together. And um, this is, um, you know, this is where we want to go with him. Um, I haven't spent shake hands down since the race. He, he may have another idea or two. He may want to put him away. I'm not sure. But um, let's wait and see. Marcus, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks, Nick. Marcus Dragoni. It would be boring not to try. I like that. I, I mean, I think also the, the structure of the season lends itself to that plan, doesn't it? Yeah. In the sense that, you've, you know, you, in the spring, you go to a Guinness trial, you go to Newmarket on May the 1st, I think it is, and if that doesn't work, then you've got the, you, you know, there, when's the first Group 1 sprint? It's, well, the Commonwealth Cup for yeah. three-year-olds, and of course, the, the point with this ownership is they have Minzal, who looks the absolute archetypal yeah. Commonwealth Cup horse, yeah. isn't he? yeah. But I mean, uh, as I say, that uh, irrespective of that, I think you know uh, it, that's the the way that the, the the season is set out. I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, Marcus Tregoning did an amazing job with Mahatha, uh, considering that horse's injury problems and had no luck. Obviously, the that memory of the the uh, the Queen Anne Stakes where uh, where he got no luck in running, and again, you know, the trainer was always good-natured. He should have been in anger management if uh, he hadn't been a successful race course trainer. I've stolen that line from uh, Marcus Townend of the Daily Mail, but I'm sure he won't mind. <laughs> I'm sure he won't. He might do. Well, if, he, if you're watching, Mark. Anyway, um, let's have a look back at Lazuli's performance yesterday in, uh, in the big sprint race because this is, a, this is a horse I thought was really going places when he won at Sandown earlier in the season, and it hasn't really happened for him. But I think on his day, he's... He's as good as most sprinters around. Yeah, and also, if he can continue and build on this next year, then there's every chance that he can certainly go up to the next level and then possibly the highest level. This is a a Group 3. As you say, he looked promising at Sandown. Uh, He then 
didn't run up to that form behind um, at Ali at uh, the same track. He ran over six in France last time, but just on that evidence, five seems to suit him yeah, very well. he's a very, very fast horse, and he's got real trailblazers taking him on. Equilateral running at the sound race, but again, he hasn't really gone on, as you might have expected from earlier in the season. I wondered if something like the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint might be in Charlie Appleby's mind for this horse. Yeah, very, very likely, I would think, that uh, that would... That would be the ideal target for him. I mean, given given his profile and what's happened this year, the fact that he's returned uh, or that he's produced a personal best on September the nineteenth would suggest that looking at mm. October November is is the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think a nice ground. Uh, quick ground where he can really use his speed is going to suit him well. I mean, what, what sort of a horse now, we wonder, after yesterday, is, is El Arkham. We know he's a, a very good one, but you keep getting the sense that he's not ever going to be quite as good as, as his trainer rather hoped he might be. Every, every so often he produces a performance that you think, well, he's going to get his group one, he's going to go on and, and really you know, break that 120 barrier and, and be a really good horse, but he's never quite made it. This was good, though. Do you ever get those horses that... You just can't get right. Cannot get right. See one of them. No matter what they do, uh, a, 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 a very disappointing run I thought at, at York on uh, King George Day, when he'd run obviously run very well at the track before. Twice, and, yeah. You know uh, that race is a hard one to assess. In the behind, you've got Desert Encounter, who again is is a, an admirable horse, but not one I would want to set my clocks by necessarily. Um, Extra elusive was. I thought a bit disappointing in third, but Elakam had his day. Then I shall tip him next time, and you know what's going to happen. Uh, but he's had quite a lot of good days. Oh, yeah, no, he's, he's, an, he's an admirable He's had a lot horse. of good yeah, days. Yeah. It's just, well, look, everybody, the, the reason that, if I, if I sound as I'm bis, being disparaging about him, that, that is because, that's in the context of us thinking, yeah. this is a Group 1 horse. Like, as you say, on his day, he is not exceptional, but very, very good. Mm. But... There are those very good days are punctuated by some not so good ones. Well, it was good to see him back yesterday. The truth of it is, he's by Frankel out of attraction. He cost 1.6 million, and he's trained by a man who doesn't like to call his geese swans, who's always been purring about the horse's ability level. So, whatever he does, if it falls any way short of being a champion, he's going to be considered to be a little bit of disappointment, which is not his fault, really. And hopefully, it's onwards and upwards from here. Dave, you're spare talking about air because I only need one person to talk about air. That's just as well, yes. Yeah. So we've got Tom coming in now to talk about air, is that correct? We have. Okay. And obviously social, social distancing uh, protocols me means I'm, I will see you a little bit later okay. on. Okay, I... Not right now. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thought we were going to go into the realms of Tomo again there for a second. Uh, it won't be Tomo, it will be Tom. Oh, God forbid. Tom Mar... Tom Mar... Quan? Quant? Whatever. Macron. We'll find out after this break. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Well, you pick up any copy of the Trade Daily through the last week and he's staring at you out of the front of it. 
And I'm delighted to say that the man of the moment, Magic Marquand, for it is pronounced that way, I've just been told, joins me now. Tom, welcome and thanks for, thanks for coming uh, in, in what's an incredibly busy time for you. But when you, things are going this well, you don't mind all the attention, do you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've never seen my picture so many times on a paper. But um, as you say, things are going great and um, it certainly makes everything feel a little easier when it is. And it is Marquand. We've, 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 we've established this now. You, your surname gets pronounced <laughs> yeah. 85 different ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I genuinely... I think it's uh, it's one of them. As long as it comes out roughly in the right area, everyone knows what you're on about. Um, but yeah, Mark wonders how uh, how we were always sort of grown up and taught to taught to be. So let's take it back then. Let's rewind all the way back to to when you were growing up and where that first connection, if any, with racing came. Or was there much when yeah. you were when you were when you were little? There wasn't like there wasn't any sort of mad connection with racing as such. It was horses. Like uh, my grandma had a horse that sort of was for hunting and dressage and auntie lived on a farm and there was little bits but living near Cheltenham was sort of probably the main catalyst between it all and um, like going going down there when school was on I'd see my headmaster and he'd just walk by and go Shh, <laughs> and just carry on walking um, you know that that was that was probably the thing that got me the most involved and then obviously pony racing and pony club and things like that it just sort of steadily built um, over the years. I mean had it not been for pony racing would it have happened? Definitely, it definitely wouldn't have happened as quickly um, as to whether it would have happened. I, like, I'd like to think that I would have got involved somehow, but genuinely, without pony racing, I mean, there's not a not a hope that I'd have been champion apprentice in my first year riding. Like, it, there would have there would have been no way because it just it puts the building blocks in place for sort of the start of a career, and and then it gets involved with the right people. Um, you know, I, I guess without pony racing, I'd have never met Holly. Uh, that means I'd have never met a dad who would have never got me a job at Richard Hannon's. I'd have never gone to America to Tom Morley before a road, which was sort of vital experience. And, and you know, all these little things that accumulated mm. to start off a career, it, it, none of it would have happened. I mean, how much planning was it on your part, or was it just a series of happy accidents? Uh, yeah, I mean, genuinely probably sort of a bit of an accident with a lot of things. Like, I ended up snicking a friend's pony that was 12-2 and he grew to six foot Bertie Bent and you know they were very kind to, to let us use him and uh, for my first season pony racing and then we bought one and, and you know it, it was kind of everything just fell into place and I seem to say that an awful lot with a lot of things but genuinely I, I, I don't know I guess it was always self-driven so it was probably more likely to fall into place when when it's something that you mm. want to do. Did you always feel very comfortable on a on a horse or on a pony? Right yeah. From the first yeah, loved it. Um, you know, mum, mum and dad. We sort of went off for a couple of years on a boat, uh, uh, and they took us out of school. And my only sort of, my only condition for sort of accepting to go away was we have to ride a horse in every country and things like that. So you know, from a young age, it was always at the forefront of my mind, and it was always something that was going to be part of my life, whether racing or just horses. Like it, it was. Um, yeah, it was always sort of ingrained in me. Who knows what will happen to, to a lot of families and the way they think about how they bring up their children after, after COVID and after lockdown, because it's forced a lot of people to think in a very different way. Your parents were thinking in a different way when they, yeah. they took you and your sister out on a, on a boat for, for two years. Just tell me a little bit about that. How old were you? Yeah, I was 11, sort of 11, 12, um, just finishing primary school, and my sister was three years older, so she, would, she came back to go straight into GCSEs, and it was more just dad, dad wasn't 
that happy with his job and they, we've all, we'd always sailed and we'd always had a boat um, like nothing ridiculous but just a, no. a small boat go down to the coast have sail for the weekend things like that and you know it was a great childhood and, and I only now do I realise how much of an incredible opportunity that was like it was just it was it was amazing and, and you know as an 11 year old it completely went over my head sort of what was going on <laughs> but um, so it's 11 to 13 yeah yeah and so you're so, homeschooled presumably during that uh, time yeah she'd call it <laughs> I didn't do an awful lot I wasn't really that interested in it but I, no to be fair I read a lot of books and that was that was as far as I went um, Amber my I sister I should say self taught yeah, yeah yeah self taught I like that um, Amber my sister did a lot more because she I mean she's she's more sort of academically uh, into all of that sort of thing than I would be. But, um, yeah, I was running around with a spear gun and a scuba tank just trying to shoot everything that I could. So, do you know, I was, uh, oh, where I was you, the Where did you one. go? Um, we started in England and, and, and went down, basically down the coast, France, Spain, Portugal, North Africa, back up Spain, Italy, and obviously Greece and finished up in Crete. Um, so we literally just, if we liked somewhere, we stayed for a couple of weeks, couple of months. If we didn't, we just move the next day and keep it going. <laughs> it sounds an amazing way of life. I mean, do you look back on it now and think it's given you a richness, a perspective, a, a, a hinterland that will be with you forever? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think and it, it was probably one of the main things as well that helped, you know, jumping into racing at 16. It's, um, yeah, it's not a straightforward world. And, no. and, and, you know, a level of maturity has to sort of be reached fairly quickly. And I think that probably had me half a step in the right direction before I even begun because, I mean, how can you not mature when you're living on a boat for two years and meeting strangers and doing different things, going and seeing different places instead of sat in school looking at a book and messing about and just flinging elastic bands at people. <laughs> That's the reality, I think, more than anything. Else. You're selling it to me. And yeah. you mentioned your sister, Amber, who's not in, involved in racing, but is she's a she's an academic, isn't she? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's actually just started a new job as a teaching assistant and loving it. So, you know, she's she's gone down a very different path, but... Um, you know, we get on well, and we had a we had a an incredible upbringing, and we were very lucky. So, yeah, it's um, not a bad way to start life. So you start at Hannans at sixteen, just yeah, sixteen. Yeah, sixteen. Walked out of school, went to Tom Morley, who you know very well, I do. Uh, for a month because I had uh, sort of that month between going to the racing school to be able to leave school. And Tom um, Tom trains in New York. Mm. Uh, Tom and his wife Maggie, who's a TV analyst for, for Naira, and they're, they're great people. I know they looked after you a lot, and he follows your career <laughs> on an almost daily basis, doesn't he? Yeah, they were, they were fantastic. I mean, genuinely, I flew over there not quite knowing what to expect, and they took me in as their child. I rode out in the morning with them, went racing with Tom, and, and, and obviously Maggie was doing all the TV bits. So it was a great experience, and again, like just complete luck of the joy everything fell into place i found out about tom through um george daly who's his godfather uh, through pony racing and it's just it's amazing how everything worked and yeah, again just got, got lucky landing with tom and maggie because they were absolutely brilliant so did that give you a bit more confidence when you came back to richard hannon as you said a big yard lots of horses but not just that lots of people lots of young people trying to get on so how do you how do you go about trying to make yourself first among equals yeah, definitely. Um, like without doubt, it helped with that. I mean, I think when I was there, there must have been seven or eight apprentices between the two yards. So I, I guess at, at Everly, I think there was three of us and the the rest up at Heritage. But I mean, it's um, you know it's a competitive environment. <laughs> like you know, you're all you're all young. You're all trying to get to the same place, and you know, I guess it's um, everyone's working hard because 
that's what you have to do. So, you know, doing things that make you stand out, I don't know, that, that's mm. kind of what you have to do. And um, How do you do that? Work hard. I, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was very lucky. I had Steve Knight down at Everly, who, you know, Grand National winning jockey, people like that, yeah, you can only but have a lot of respect for, and, and having people like him on my side was was huge. Um, but is it, is it the way you carry yourself as much as the way you, you ride the horses? Yeah, I think so. You know, being an apprentice is, is not just about riding the horses. You know, there was a lot of work in the yard and, and you know, getting up early, mucking out, helping a head lass with feeding the yard and little things like that, sweeping the barn in between lots, riding out of breakfast, <laughs> just little little things um, that at the time seemed so insignificant and that, well, that's what you do because you want to get somewhere. Um, looking back now, it's probably, you know, I, I don't know, it was I like working harder than anyone else I'm not sure everyone was working hard but you know it, it, it must have worked in some manner now you were already uh, going out with Holly at this point weren't you yeah yeah we were we were together quite young uh, when we were pony racing and she actually came to Richards about seven eight months after me because she'd had a spell at Devon's for a year or two and um, Richards was sort of the next step up the ladder for her as well but she was up at Harridge and I was down at Everly um, so there was still a work-life split at that point. <laughs> and so when can you remember the first time you you met her when you were much younger? Yeah we, we, we pony raced together and you know it wasn't a it wasn't a bang me that was us it was sort of you know we knew each other for a year or two we ended up at the racing school together doing pony racing courses and things like that and it was um you know, because we were in the same area for pony racing, we were always around each other, so it was, uh, yeah, I guess it, it gradually happened. And so now she's got a, a career that is going from strength to strength. You've got a career that's going from strength to strength. Um, how straightforward do you find it to, to manage your, your, your lives together, if you like? Yeah, I mean, gen genuinely, I, th I think we probably both can't believe how well the last few years have worked out. I mean, take two 13-year-olds and get them uh, to achieve their goals sort of within six, seven years, eight, eight years is is mental. But um, honestly, I guess because we've always been used to it at pony racing, it doesn't feel like anything's changed. <laughs> like, it's mad. So, yeah, in our house, it's kind of, I don't know, it's just a normal household to us. Yeah. But, to, to, what, to what extent ha or how have you helped each other, do you think? Is it just I mean, that shared experience? Yeah, I mean, honestly, we don't really, you know, we wouldn't go home and sit in front of replays and go, oh, you should have done this, you should have done that. There's none, none of that. It's just uh, our careers have, have, have built over the last few years and I guess, you know, it's been... I've, I've found it amazing watching Holly the last two years in particular because, you know, she, she had a quiet start. Like, it took two or three years to get going and build up a bit of momentum and then the last two years she's flown and seeing the confidence difference and... And the difference in sort of our way of life together now, we're both busy and, and, and having that success is, there's a, there's a large contrast, you know, from things like, you know, we lived in, a, in, in one of Richard's houses down at Everly, a bungalow and on the yard. And I mean, it's like four years ago now, we were able to sort of buy a house together in Hungerford and, and, and you know, it just, it changes so much, but it feels so much the same. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. 
Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. My thanks to Tom Marquand. David Yates rejoins me back here in the Luck on Sunday studio. Uh, what an impressive guy he is. Absolutely. I mean, there is a, as, as you, I think to say you alluded to there, uh, the younger generation of jockeys who uh, are active on social media and just make the, make the sport so much mm. more accessible. Asheen Murphy's stuff this summer has been really, it's, it's, I was going to say it's been revelatory. Of course yeah. it's been revelatory, but it, it's, it's just a, it, it's, an, it's an excellent way. Uh, to engage new people with the sport. Obviously, Kieran Fallon has been very good as well. And it, it's, it's really heartening to see. You know, that, I mean, dealing with Tom Markon is a, is a dream. I, I, I can't see it changing over the years, you know, because mm. he's had the odd setback, you know, the English King uh, issue he dealt with with dignity. And uh, we were sure, obviously, that better days would come. And indeed, they did. It's just been a, a shame, really, that there hasn't been a bigger crowd to enjoy the exploits of Tom Marquand in the last couple of weeks. There will, however, be a smattering, a light smattering of, of spectators, of paying spectators at Warwick Racecourse tomorrow as the intended next part of the government pilot scheme goes ahead, albeit slightly, slightly reduced. Uh, Andre Klein is the general manager of Warwick Racecourse and joins me on the line now. Hi, Andre. Morning, Nick. It's been an eventful couple of weeks on, on, on this front. I mean, how surprised are you as we sit here on Sunday that, all things being equal, I almost daren't say it, that you are actually going ahead with the spectator trial? Oh, it, I tell you what, Nick, it's been an incredible challenge to get to get this event up and running. Um, so you talk about the word accessible there. <laughs> These guys do a great job of making the sport accessible. Um, but it'd be nice for people to be able to access the race courses to enjoy it um, you know, full on. But this has been a huge, huge, huge challenge, a massive undertaking. And um, I'll be honest, I think, you know, we went into it quite naive, you know, not knowing kind of what was going to be required. Um, and it's 20-odd it's years of managing race courses all around the world. This is certainly unique um, and uh, probably the most fascinating and uh, interesting one I've ever, ever tried to stage. And it's only for 500 people. So where are we at now? I mean, it's, we ought to be quite clear, especially after what happened last week with the, the coach trip, which we'll talk about a little, a little later. <laughs> Who can come to Warwick tomorrow? OK, so we've, we've got 150 of our members. Um, so they've, they've got more than 150 members here at Warwick, so we offered them the opportunity to come. Um, we've had to go back to quite a significant percentage of those um, in the last 48 hours to say, look, we'd love you to come, we love you to bits, but you're not going to be able to come because you're, you, you're domiciled in an area that's under, uh, under a local lockdown. Um, and we've had to do the same with, you know, we've got 124 hospitality guests. The most, in fairness, most of those hospitality guests are return customers, so we kind of didn't necessarily go on, on public sale with hospitality. Um, and we've had to do the same with them. They've, you know, we had a bit of warning, so they in, they've had to change change guest lists and what have you. But um, but there's nothing on sale for the general public. And, you know, when we went into the, uh, the, the, the process of developing the pilot plan, there was always a hope that we would get some general public here. Um, but, look, it just became increasingly, you know, apparent in the... We weren't even going to get a, we wouldn't get a green light of any sort um, if we'd just fought that general admission battle for pretty much you know, for very much longer with the local authorities here, public health authorities, and of course then their owners. So um, and they've got a very different kind of experience to what they've had behind closed doors right. to, tomorrow. So they've got a more involved experience, a more regular experience. 
Yeah, well, it's only, it's only more regular. It'd be, it's going to be, you know, they'll be, they're always well looked after, you know, at our venue. But the difference for them tomorrow, um, and this is we have to be really clear on this, is, is is that they will be checking of postcodes on arrival, and if anyone's come from a, it comes from a restricted area, be they, you know, owners, members, or, um, or, or, or you know, hospitality guests, they won't be able to access the venue. So, I mean, on a normal behind closed doors, they're not. And funny enough, on Tuesday, no one's being. That's not being put into. That's not being exercised. So it's quite an inconsistent um, kind of policy. But um, for us, because of the, you know, the, the restrictions upon us as, as a result of the pilot meeting and the local health authorities, on we're not allowed anyone on course that comes from restricted area. So, an interesting one for them. Uh, Andre, um, thanks for talking to us, and best of luck tomorrow. Uh, and, and I hope it goes well for you. And then I'm sure we'll talk again after it's done. Of course, Nick, yeah. No, we're looking forward to it. We just want to give everyone a great day out, really. Andre, thank you. Andre Klein, the general manager of, uh, of Warwick Racecourse. I'm not much more to be said, Dave, to be honest with you, other than to stress now where we're at, which is that these these race days, if they're going to go ahead, it's it, it's, it has to be with cooperation, not just of, of the government and the DCMS, but most crucially, the, the, the local division of Public Health England. Yeah, they have absolutely. the power to take that. They could take this away tomorrow morning. They could. Let's hope they don't. Um, as you say, there's not much more to be said. I would put a. I would say one thing about Andre Klan. He's about the most go-ahead and impressive racecourse manager I've seen in a while. Uh, Warwick had some really ambitious and impressive plans for the VE celebrations, which of course uh, were unable to come to fruition. But uh, in the years to come, I don't want to embarrass Andre. But if the jockey club's top brass don't give him a, a shot at a very big track, then with respect, more full then. Um, Dave, did you watch all the racing yesterday across uh, England and Ireland? Um, probably not all of it, no. Most of it, I would have thought. Are you aware of the what apparently was the biggest gamble that was yeah, landed I, yesterday? Yeah, I am aware of this, yeah, of course. This is, it's, this is the real deal? Yes, indeed. OK, and this is the horse who opened up at 20 to 1, having shown... Very limited form. Yeah, several rules starts both yeah. on the flat and over hurdles. Had shown a little bit of ability in point to points earlier in his career, uh, and he went off the six to four favourite. This was the first hurdle, uh, and this was an inauspicious beginning at the back here to the uh, real deals race. Oh my word! And that gamble very, very nearly went west. And in the end, if you were a backer of the real deal, you'd have been quite happy as they turned for home. Uh, the horse still travelling well and wins pretty decisively. He hadn't, as I say, shown any meaningful form in several starts prior to this. This was his 13th career race. He had, however, since July been running on the flat at Navan, Curra and Cork and over seven furlongs as well. And this was a two and three quarter mile hurdle race. The last time the horse ran in a race of this sort of distance over hurdles was on heavy ground at Limerick back in December and as I say his, his only meaningful promise was in a couple of point to point races in the middle of May. Now this caused a, a degree of consternation to put it politely across social media and elsewhere. The stewards had a good look at this and they've referred it to Horse Racing Ireland for further examination. Now in a moment Ronan McNally the trainer of this horse is, is going to chat with me Dave but what was your, what was your instinct when you saw this? Well I, I, I just think well first of all what doesn't cause consternation on social media it's the most hateful uh, medium that uh, th that I've ever 
seen. I'd say, and I've said it before, I think it's the worst. Social media is the worst thing that's happened to the human race uh, since the bubonic plague. Uh, it makes us all narcissistic, hatred-driven, you know. And so, of course, you're going to get uh, lots of stick on social media. Lots of people just want to go there and sling bile about. Let's face it. This has been referred. Well, let's see what happens. One thing I would say, and I think we're going to talk about this during the talking point, so I'm not going to spend all my bullets at once, but isn't this why racing's referred to as the glorious uncertainty? When I was growing up, when I went to university, it was exactly this sort of thing uh, that, uh, that, 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 that attracted me to horse racing. Well, that's an interesting philosophical bait and one that we will get into in, in a few moments' time. But as I said, you know, there was an awful lot of speculation, and I said when we walked in this morning, well, has anyone asked Ronan McNally? And the answer was, well, no, no one really has ask Ronan McNally, and I can ask Ronan McNally now because he joins us on the line. Morning, Ronan. Well, Nick, how's things? Not too bad, thank you very much. And if, if anyone needs reminding, um, we saw a fair bit of you on the channel in the last 18 months or so, courtesy of the, of the Jam Man and your son Tubbs, who, who used to, or still does, ride the, ride the horse out. We'll perhaps come to that in a moment. But let, let's talk about, about yesterday. Did you back the horse yesterday? Uh, I backed the horse, Nick, yesterday, and I got on at three to one was the best price I got on, and at a couple of pounds, six to four. So you, you backed the horse yourself at three to one, and you had a bit more on it at, at six to four. Um, who, who, who nicked the twenties? Uh, <clears throat> I think the, the whole betting game now is a farce, Nick. Uh, this overnight betting, uh, I had two horses in the race, and both of them were backed into favourite and second favourite. So if that was me betting the horses, surely I couldn't have two winners in the race. So uh, the whole night before thing, like it's a complete farce. Like there was no gamble from twenty to one. Uh, there was no gamble on the horse at all. I had a few quid. I back all my horses. I backed the Bob Elephant the day before, and he was beat. There's no controversy over that. You know what I mean? So I have a few quid in my horses for luck. I, I run them for a bit of crack. And they uh, have a few pound on for a wee bit of luck, and that, that's the height of it. Like, there's no monster gamble. Like, the, the, book, the whole thing with the bookies these days, if a horse is 20 to 1, 100 pounds would move it into 12 anyway. So, I think the whole, this whole big gamble thing is a f- bit of a farce, to be honest. But with that in mind, is it fair to say that you knew, or at least you had a strong view yesterday, that for whatever reason, the horse was going to suddenly show some form? No, no. Well, uh, my horses there. Look, I've been documenting it to the turf club there. I had the winner from last November, which was the Jam Man, to uh, July. I my yard came down last for Gillis, and it was only really uh, one of the Jam Man disappointed me at Cheltenham that he coughed very badly and bled after the race. The, the, the vets over at the Cheltenham examined him. He had bled very badly. We came home, got him lung washed, and we discovered he had aspergillus. So we found it was our forage that we were on. So the whole yard had been sort of running quite disappointing then from sort of I had the winner from November right through to July this year which was Trigger and uh, that horse was was no different he was running pretty poorly and uh, you know at the time we couldn't put a finger on what was wrong but now in reflection obviously hindsight's a great thing but we know we had aspergillus and the horses weren't healthy. As far as this horse is concerned the real deal you'd campaigned him quite unconventionally because he'd had a few runs over hurdles over lots of different distances and then he'd had a handful of runs on the flat and he didn't really do much and one of those was over seven furlongs. Just talk me through your thinking building up to yesterday. 
Uh, we started, I bought him, uh, Nick, I look at I've only, I work at Kitchens and this is a bit of a hobby for me. I had uh, bought this horse £50,000. Uh, he went to the sales, the Cheltenham after been stacking in a four-year-old pint of pint, which yeah. is an exceptional farm in Ireland these days. And uh, he was lame on the day and he went on sold at 20000 that He was bought back. So I, I bought him private at uh, 50000 which, look, I had never paid more than £15,000 for a horse. So for me, it was a big punt. I was advised to buy the horse and uh, I probably panicked a wee bit because it spent so much and I took him into training and maybe pushed on too much. And, you know, four-year-olds in Ireland are, are trained very, very hard. So they are to try and win a four-year-old because there's so much uh, value at the sales if they can win. So uh, I went on, he ran the first day for Maiden Avon in a, in a winter Maiden hurdle, which is very hot in Ireland, and he finished uh, mid-division, only beat 30 lengths, which I thought was exceptional uh, for his first run. We went on to Down Royal, and uh, he ran in a, in a hurdle against Envoy Allen. There was two bunches on the day in that race, basically two races, and we tried to go with Envoy Allen's group, and uh, we stayed with him probably between the third last and second last, and uh, again, in hindsight, that was probably stupid to do that because obviously we are not of that caliber, and uh, that probably left a mark on the horse. He got a hard race that day, and uh, probably tying in with the health of the horses, maybe going downhill, the whole thing fell apart. So uh, last year, la- last season was a bit of a washout in that respect. So then, just coming to the flat runs this season. Uh, because then I'd realised that we had sort of the horses were sticking at Aspergillus and they weren't enjoying racing because obviously they were going racing and bleeding uh, deep down in their lungs. So I started to give a few of the horses a run in the flat just to try and bring them back where they would be able to run over shorter distances, not get as hard a races and come back and start to enjoy their racing. So, so no, that was sort of... So so yesterday, Ronan, was the first time you really thought the horse had any sort of a chance. So you, you, you'd been... Would it be fair to say that the flat runs were get-ready runs? They won't get ready. There were there were runs to sharpen him in his mind and learn him to race without uh, sort of bleeding and things like that. So they were they were trying to teach the horse to enjoy racing again, Nick. And he his runs on the flat aren't bad, as bad as they look. Uh, he ran at Navin and and like there was hurdlers behind him in Navin in a two mile. He, it was a two mile race won by Felix Beji, a Grade One winner. And uh, again, he was men division. Uh, and uh, there was horses behind him rated 133 and stuff over hurdles. So look, at it wasn't that you know his runs aren't that bad if you look at them. And so, just for the, for clarity, so everyone's clear, Ronan, whenever you've taken this horse to the races, have you run him on his merits? Have you have you run yeah. him with the intention of him producing the best possible finishing position? Every day he's run. When when you pay that for a price tag for a horse, you're going to the races hoping to win. Like you need to start recouping some of your money and. Uh, when you're training horses there for yourself and uh, all the bills are coming in, you, you're not going running horses from November to July, not trying to get winners because it's all money going out all the time. And that's what people don't understand. People think, you know, you see an odd winner coming here and you've done this and you've done that. But uh, you need to you need to get prize money to try and pay the bills. And, and did you did you make a lot of money yesterday or not? No, 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 no. I look at I had a few quid on Nick as I do. It, it was a, I bet every horse that I, that I run just for a bit of crack and enjoyment. Uh, it was the same as the back to Bob Allison the day before. And I would uh, I would challenge any bookie. I will give full permission for any bookie to come up, come forward and say that I back the horse at any big prices or I have any volume of money on. I have no issue with that. Ronan, thanks for chatting to me this morning. No problem. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Ronan McNally, the man who trains the real deal, Dave. Yes.
Uh, are we going to discuss this in talking points as well? Or no, you can just have your you have your I, have I, your say. I just I think that every time when something like this happens, you can you can basically split punters down the middle. It was the same with the the the, the Barney Curley inspired gamble of a few years ago. There was a uh, in the trade paper, you know, some columnist saying that everyone involved should be flogged at sea, and lots of others saying good luck to them. They've not broken any rules. The handicappers dropped the horses involved. There you go. I I am I, happy to belong to the latter camp because at least that shows I've got some generosity of spirit. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. My next guest has marshaled the careers through the last 25 years of some of the biggest names in the music industry, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers through Florence and the Machine to Kylie Minogue and Rihanna. I'm delighted to say she is now entering the racehorse industry in a reasonably significant way with her star Lady Bothorpe bound for the Group 1 Sun Chariot Stakes uh, at Newmarket in a couple of weeks' time. She is Emma Banks. Emma, thank you very much for joining us on Luck on Pleasure. Sunday. Nice to be here. And uh, I'd say you've had a, an amazing career in the, in the music industry. How does sort of entering the racing fray compare at the moment? It's, uh, it's got all the same problems. <laughs> um, actually, racing has slightly fewer problems because of the TV. Mm. You can still do it. And with my business, which is live music, you can't because no-one's really watching that on television. You know, so, so that, from that point of view, we're completely shut down still and hard to see that we're going to get opened up with no social distancing for a long time, whereas at least racing's happening. It makes, I think, me realise how lucky the racing industry has been to be carrying on in at least some shape or form. And the, yeah. the biggest part of your business has been sort of running the big live tours for these huge acts all over the world. Uh, can you give me some idea of the scale of the of the loss for for that portion of the industry? Well, it's it's, it, well, it's multi multi millions. I mean, we're talking ju just numbers that you can't think about. You know, we've got about two hundred and fifty thousand people that work in live music, live entertainment in the UK, and that's you know people think about the bands and and maybe the direct crew members. But it's the trucking, it's the buses, it's the caterers, it's the people that do the advertising. It's all of those people as well that are all impacted. So it's huge. And, you know, the Treasury, there's masses of that that's not going in. So you look at the whole thing. Mm. It's impossible. You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber, a far higher profile horse owner than I, um, has been obviously very vocal about what's going on in theatre. They have exactly the same problems. Yeah, it's hard though, isn't it? You know, he will say that his theatres have air filters in them that are as good, if not better, than the airlines. Mm. You're allowed to go and sit on a plane and go to LA for nine hours, ten hours, twelve hours, whatever it is. That shows how long it is since I got on a plane. Because six months ago, I could have told you to the minute how yeah. long it took. Um, and so there are, you know, there are some mixed messages. Ultimately, we only want people to be safe, but people are not going to be safe if they have no way of earning a living. How did you come about this extraordinary career looking after some of these huge names putting on these massive tours? Where did it all start? It started at university. Before I went to university, I would never, ever have thought I would be in the music business. 
I did a food science degree at Reading. So this all makes sense. So it's a you natural, know. natural route. Exactly. You clearly <laughs> understand how I ended up here. And when I was there, I used to do lots of my loves when I was at school were drawing, drawing, drama, debating and ponies, horses, that stuff. When I went to uni, I wasn't over enamoured with the drama at Reading. So I got involved in the RAGS organisation, you know, the charity fundraising side, and we organised gigs. And I realised organising a gig wasn't that different to organising the Gymkhana I used to organise. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. And the mix of sort of art and commerce, you know, being able to be behind the scenes and part of a career for somebody, plotting and planning, was then why I sort of thought when it came to it, much to the despair of my parents, who clearly wanted me to have a proper job, um, I was like, well, I like this music thing and I like the people I'm meeting. So I wrote God knows how many letters. This is, you know, obviously, I'm ancient, so it was before internet and mobile phones. And eventually, you know, one guy said, OK, we'll give you a shot. And I started and I've done it ever since. And I'm just, I think hard work pays off, you know, starting earlier, finishing later. It strikes me that for somebody like you, you've got to tread quite a careful balance between being high profile enough that everybody wants to be with Emma Banks because it'll be good for their career, but low profile enough not to kind of be in the limelight when you've got these big, presumably massive egos to, to deal with. Uh, and it, it must be quite, must, you must have to be quite deft in that respect. Yeah, I, th I mean, ultimately, I'm not the one that anybody buys a ticket for. No one, no one cares who booked the show. No one cares who promoted the show. They care about Katy Perry or the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Florence and the Machine being on the stage. Mm. And it really, the rest of it doesn't matter to the people that pay for their tickets that matter mm. to us. So I think so long as you realise that all of my success is down to other people. You know, I may have been smart and lucky in attaching myself to the right people... But it's not me that does it. It's them that, that does it. And I help. A little bit like having, you know, a great trainer with a racehorse. You know, the racehorses and, and, you know, the jockey, they're doing the actual work. But you have to position them in the right places. So I suppose I'm a bit like a trainer. And is that what appeals to you about, about racing? The plotting and the planning and the working out which horse is going to run where and the management of the career? I think what appealed to me in the first place was just the pony aspect of it. Um, you know, and I still want a black one, you know, that's <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, but, but yeah, that's one of the things I find fascinating about it now is, you know, the more I get into it, and I've owned horses now for, I think it's six years, so it's not long. Yeah. You know, I had pony, 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 stopped, went to university, worked like a lunatic to try and earn enough money potentially to have a horse and of course then it suckers you in and every year you're like oh well I need a two-year-old for next year and then I started missing it in the winter so then you need a national hunt horse and then you realize how long they take so you need a couple more national hunt horses for 10 years time <laughs> um, so it's an appalling appalling thing to get involved with but yeah the you know understanding a little bit about the breeding and the pattern of the races and how once you get rated 108 you're sort of screwed um, <laughs> if you're not good enough to win group races because there's not much else you can do 
I mean, that I find fascinating. I've you know, been looking at some of the horses that Lady Bothorp's been running against, and they're all rated in the, some of them, not uh, rated in the hundreds, but they've earned very little money. And that's a frustration that you, you've got horses that are rated 75 that have potentially won more money than a horse rated in the hundreds. Mm. That's a bit weird, isn't it? That you could be way better as a horse, but you don't succeed. That doesn't really work for humans. It doesn't. And of course, in, in your business, it is success breeds success. You know, yeah. the, the bigger you become, the more money you make. It's, exactly. it's as simple as that. Whereas, you know, racing's um, reward system is, as you point out, somewhat unusual. Is it unusual enough, though, to put you off? No. No. No, currently nothing can put me off. You know, I'll go without things. This is a tough year. It's a really tough year. And I now think much more about what I'm doing and what I'm spending because you have an obligation when you own horses. They've got to they've got to come first. I mean, ultimately, they need to be fed. They need to be looked after. They need to be taken care of. And there's a cost in that. And it concerns me a little bit when I think about my tidying up, clearing of horses, whatever, that right now, if you're selling a horse because it's not very good, you know, we've seen the yearling sales so far, it's fine, and everyone talks about, oh, you know, the clearance rates were good, but all the numbers are actually down, and the yearlings always cost more, because there's there's the dream, Mm. and the horses in training sale, I've always thought, those sales always have to come afterwards, because otherwise (laughs) you'd be so depressed, Mm. no one would buy a yearling, Um, But the thought to me of selling a horse so cheaply that you just don't know who's buying it and whether they'll care about it freaks me out a bit. And quite frankly, if you've got to pay £800 to enter the horse in the sale... You might not get 800 quid. You might not get that back. Mm. And would you have been better, so long as it's a horse that could be retrained, retraining it, giving it away to somebody you know will give it a really good home? So already, in a fairly short space of time as a racehorse owner, you've considered the finance and funding of the sport, the fixtures, the rewards, <laughs> the uh, the aftercare. It's amazing how the sport sucks you in and consumes you yeah. if you really care. Are you one of these people who, if you if you get interested in something, you get really interested in it? Yes, I would say so. Yeah, I can't do it by halves. And has that sort of informed your whole way of life? I think so, yeah, yeah. And that should be then good news for for us in the sport because that's exactly what what we need owners who are going to look after it and sustain it and uh, and and love it I suppose what is it about the day itself that that you you like or dislike at the moment and take covid aside a regular racing day it, it's 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 the excitement isn't it it's not knowing you know you think you've got a chance but who knows and the race might be run in the wrong way something else I keep learning about um and I think then just the experience, I, I haven't really found many people in racing that I don't like. You know, I think even the biggest shot jockeys and trainers and owners, particularly people actually working with horses, there is something about having to get up early and being surrounded by shit all the time, sorry, um, that makes it quite real. You know, you're not, it's not all running around drinking champagne. You're actually dealing with living animals, and and I think that makes people real. Mm. And again, I think it's not an easy way of life. There's there's way more trainers that struggle than don't, but they still keep doing it because they love it, 
And I think when you work with people that have passion, that I mean, it's the same as being a musician. Most musicians never make it. Even if, if you have a record deal, even all of those things, you still probably won't make it. Mm. But they can't do anything else. You know, they, in their heart, their spirit, their soul, it's all about that. I was listening to an interview that you gave, and I was fascinated because you said different musicians need different outlets, really, to make themselves good. And as long as it's authentic and real, then then the success will follow. And I, I suppose racing's a similarly um, non-uniform game, really. Not everyone fits into the same bracket. Not everyone yeah. is going to be campaigning horses the same way. Not everyone's necessarily aspiring to the same thing. Everyone's getting slightly different things out of it. Absolutely. And I think you have to look, as humans can be a little bit more fragile, so can horses. So you've got, I've, you know, you've got humans that are literal. I consider myself more a cart horse than a thoroughbred. I can keep on going. I may, you know, I can't run that fast, literally and probably metaphorically, but I can keep working and take on quite a lot in a way that some people can't. But mm. they may have those moments of utter brilliance that maybe I don't have. And I think you see the same with horses. So occasionally, you know, there are horses that run three times in a season and that's right for them. And then there's horses where you go, he's tough, he's a handicapper, he can run every three weeks. Occasionally, if you win, you might put him out there within the week so that, you know, depending what you think your handicapper's going to do. That is quite interesting. You know, the handicapper for me... Although, as I'm now realising, you can probably make more money with them sometimes. But they're, you know, they are those good, solid bands that are out there playing Shepherd's Bush Empire and playing to 3,000 people a night all over the world, year in, year out. And then you have other artists that, you know, they'll have a nervous breakdown if they're away from home for three weeks. Is um, Lady Bothorpe Katy Perry? Um... <laughs> No, I'm trying to think who... Lady, Lady Bothorpe's more Florence, probably, right. actually. Katie, because Lady Bothorpe's been a bit more sensitive about stuff. Katy Perry, while she is obviously a sensitive human being, is so hard-working. She's so hard-working and doesn't let anything faze her. You know, Lady Bothorpe's been a bit of a pain in the neck sometimes. <laughs> you know, when you drive all the way to Yarmouth and uh, put Jamie Spencer on top of her and think this is all going to be brilliant. You go off super hot favourite and then she rears up at the stalls, Jamie falls off and uh, she has to do the walk of shame all the way back to the stables. <laughs> that's, that's not the easiest horse. But unpredictable artist though she is, she does have those moments of brilliance. She's got her group race oh, win. God, She's yeah, going absolutely. for a group one. She could be not worth as much to you as some of those really big names that you deal with, but not far off soon. Yeah. But she's only worth it if I sell her, isn't she? And you don't want to, do you? I don't want to sell her. You, you work all this time, you know, buying horses, and, and James Toll has been amazing. And, you know, in six years, I have two horses with black type. You know, Mrs Gallagher won two listed races. Incredible. That's incredible. And she's now got a beautiful foal by Dark Angel. You know, William's trained both of them. There's others that, you know, we've thought were going to be good that maybe haven't been so good. But I've been in incredibly lucky with that. But it costs the same to train Lady Bothorpe as it does to train the ones that sort of, you know, have a leg dangling around like that. And old Arigato, he, he is playing the Shepherd's Bush Empire every week, isn't he? He is. He is. Oh, I'd say he's probably Brixton Academy now. 
you reckon? I think he's Brixton Academy. But, you know, he's special. I mean, I bought him as a foal. His birthday is my birthday. It's not the reason you're supposed to buy a horse. Um, oh, look, there he is. But it's amazing. With it works his girlfriend. In, it works in so many Josephine. different ways. Josie has ridden in pretty much every start, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah. Martin Lane started on him. It was so depressing for Martin, he gave up being a jockey. <laughs> I don't think we can blame Arigato for that, but, uh, yeah, but Josephine's what, been there. What I love is just the, the, the sheer affection you have for these horses, and I really, really hope it continues, as I hope your, your love for this game continues. I, I feel like we're only scratching the surface. It's been 20 minutes. I, we, could, we could go on all, all morning. Emma, thank you so much for, for coming to, nice to, 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 to chat to me. You've played some, or you, you and your artists have played some wonderful venues around the world. I mean, I don't know whether this... This is a highlight, though. It really uh, is. Whether this... Uh, you know what? One day, I want to get, get my colours up here. If, <laughs> if that happens... This could be arranged. I'll have made it. This can definitely be arranged. Oh, there we go. I'll bring them in. Perhaps sooner than you think. There you go. Emma, thank you very much. I mean, this, Thanks, being, this being TV, I have to... I have to if anyone was, was in any way uh, offended by Emma's um, oh, yes, just expression of enthusiasm earlier on, I have to, have to do the, <laughs> the thing that I have to do. But thank you. Thank and you. And good luck with Lady Bothorpe in the Sun Chariot Stakes uh, in a couple of weeks' time. My thanks to Tom Marquand, as we've now found out his surname is pronounced, uh, for his excellent contribution earlier in the programme. My thanks also to David Yates for his thoughts. And, of course, uh, Ronan McNally, Andre Klein and Marcus Dragoning for joining us on the phone. But a year ago, uh, one man sat in the seat where Emma is now and talked both realistically and positively about what he'd uh, been through in the sport. We lost him very sadly this week. Pat Smullen, we remember you. Is there one moment that, that you wouldn't trade in from your, your brilliant career that you look back and say... That one, that one stays. If I had to give any up, that, that would not be it. Uh, look, it's just to state the obvious. Obviously, you know, winning the derby was, was uh, you know, uh, it's an, an you know, the old saying that it's childhood dream, but it actually is because uh, when you set out as an apprentice, you watch, you know, the, the derby, and while winning your your own derby at the Coral was very, very special, and to do it twice, but uh, to win the Epsom Derby is the is the defining moment of a rider, in my opinion. And uh, it came at the really right time in my life in that I was desperately wanted to win it and I appreciated every minute of it. And more importantly, the three kids were old enough to, to, to remember it and appreciate it. So it, that was an amazing day. And they're off. So the field leaves the stores for the Investec Derby of 2016. Port Douglas is hurried up to the lead with Deauville also racing handily and also moving forward in the early stages. Shogun, Ulysses up towards the inside as well as they make their way through the first furlong with Port Douglas just taking them along. Towards the outside of the field, both Cloth of Stars racing in a handy position in company as well with Massart who's racing a little keenly as Port Douglas now crosses over and makes his way towards the running rail. In fourth place is Shogun just ahead of Moonlight Music who's towards the inside inside at the moment. Moonlight Magic sitting in about fifth place. As settling just behind those, we have Idaho. Ulysses drops into about midfield with Harzand at the moment, and also across the stars. US Army Ranger is given time towards the rear of the field in company with Wings of Desire, and having jumped from the outside stall, Red Verdon has been given time as well, crossing right behind the field, along with Humphrey Bogart is at the rear of the field. So out in front, and at a reasonable gallop, it is Port Douglas who tows the Derby field up the hill and continues the climb from incentive 
second place, the Godolphin Blue Jacket of Cloth of Stars. Third for Moonlight Magic, racing on the inside of Massart, within fifth place, the free-sweating Idaho on the outside of Shogun, and then across the stars. Harzan midfield in company with Ulysses, then Biodynamic, who's just ahead of Deauville, Wings of Desire in those uh, maroon colours. US Army Ranger, the all-dark blue, has Humphrey Bogart and Red Burden behind. As now the field begin, that trademark descent towards Tattenham Corner, and there is no hanging about for Port Douglas out in front. He has gone five or six lengths clear. In second place, Cloth of Stars, Massart, Biodynamic, moves up on the outside. Then behind these, we have Idaho, just pushed along to give chase his Moonlight Magic. At this stage, across the stars with Harzan, Algometer comes next with Wings of Desire. US Army Rangers still in no hurry, and right at the back of the field is Red Burden. Port Douglas leads the turn for home, but the pack are right at his heels. Cloth of Stars poised to have first crack. Then Massart, pulling out his Idaho. Harzan comes next. Pulled towards the outside, Wings of Desire, US Army Ranger. Red Burden getting a nice seam right up the inside rail. Port Douglas is taken on by Cloth of Stars. Now joining in down the outside is Idaho. Harzan comes next. Red Burden ran out of room on the inside. Right down the outside, Wings of Desire and US Army Ranger. Idaho strike cabin. Harzan are the first to go for home. US Army Ranger is now in full cry towards the outside. They enter the final furlong. Harzan, US Army Ranger have got to the leader's girth, but have still got to get by as Harzan is pulling out more. And it's Harzan in the colours of the Aga Khan who has won the Investec Derby for Pat Smullen and Dermot Wells.